Hi, my name's Chris, and this is season three of My Life, and welcome to it, Seeking God's Face. Well, I'm back, and uh, today is... Saturday, January 15th, 2020. We're into a new year. And so far, so good. Uh, but I, you know, I was reflecting on the nature of how we, as human beings, measure time, generally speaking. We measure it in circles. We have seconds and minutes and hours, um, years, you know, so I'm going to be 66 at the end of February. And um, 66 what? 66 years, 66 circles around the sun. 60 cycles of a solar year. That's how we, you know, and we measure time that way. We have repeating one through seven weeks. And we've got months. And we repeat them. However, that's not how time is. Time is not circular. Time is linear. Time goes from the past, passes through the present, and shoots towards the future. However, time only exists now, as far as I know. I can't go back and retrieve the past, and I can't look forward into the future um, some people feel that time past is fixed right you can't change it it's already happened time forward those events in time forward um, possibly possibly you could find out what they are but because they haven't actually happened change. Unless, of course, you subscribe to the idea of block time. And it, uh, basically, that means that everything's fixed and predetermined. Determinism is a thing. And it is somewhat um, prevalent in uh, uh, quantum physics. Things are determined. Personally, I don't think so. But time is important as we begin to discuss the nature of the Eucharist. One of the things that I was most impressed uh, regarding Christianity and Catholicism in particular was that it was a valid spiritual path. It has all that I had come to find useful in the journey of the spirit and even more so than than than, than many you know um, however just like my grandfather uh, told my mom he said uh, you know the truth is in the church but it's 
covered over by a lot of stuff. And honestly, that's, I found the same. Uh, and he was speaking more so of the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church. But I found that to be sometimes true of the Roman Catholic Church. In our practices and in our liturgies. What exactly is going on? What exactly, you know, what exactly is there that will bring me closer to God? And, um, you know, the, the uh, Divine Liturgy, it's uh, celebrated every, every Sunday and often daily, but at least on Sundays, is one of the practices that the church offers um, for us to get closer to God. And, uh, you know, I've been uh, ruminating on the idea of sacrifice for the last few weeks since we gathered and talked about uh, the real presence. And uh, there's a lot, you know, as I was saying, that the celebration of the Eucharist, the second half of the liturgy, the, the sacred liturgy, it's called the Liturgy of the Eucharist, um, is, is very nuanced and deep and profound. And, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I have the good fortune of being the host of another podcast called Let's Talk Parish, where I chat with various parishioners at the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament here in Sacramento about their lives and their journey of faith and, and, and stuff. And, uh, the, uh, the episode that was released today, January 15th, um, during that conversation that I had, um, I realized that I really look for the supernatural, the mystical, um, in my day to day. And there's no difference when it comes to the liturgy. Um, whether it's the liturgy of the word, which is in the first half of the sacred liturgy or the mass, as it's more commonly known, or whether it's in the second half, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the supernatural is there. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to explore the idea of, of sacrifice. And it's something that I think as a, as a culture, we've lost, we've lost um, the idea, we've lost the meaning, we've lost the reason for sacrifice. And when, you know, when we think of sacrifice, I'm sure a lot of different pictures comes to mind. Um, for many, for many millennia in the history of the human race, there was the sacrifice of animals. And that's also, uh, you know, that's a practice that is no longer ascribed to. It's frowned upon, rightly so. Um, I don't think we need to get go back to the sacrifice of animals. 
But I think it's important that we understand what was going on. People weren't being cruel necessarily. There was a reason for all that. Um, sacrifice could mean, you know, for some uh, peoples down in, in uh, South America, there was human sacrifice. There was even human sacrifice in the Middle East. There was human there's probably been human sacrifice all over the place. Europe and Asia and everywhere, you know. And that's definitely frowned upon these days. But why would people do something like that? It just doesn't seem right. You'd think that just people would have an innate aversion to human sacrifice. There's a reason why they did it. And it's important that we, uh, we take a look at that and understand it. Um, sacrifice could mean, as a parent, it could mean taking care of your children when you'd rather be doing something else, attending a sporting event when you could be doing something else. Um, you know, sacrificing what you want to do as an adult for the sake of your children out of love. Sacrifice could mean foregoing a meal. You know, um, depending on our motivations for doing so. Sacrifice is a giving up of something. And that's exactly what's going on in the holy sacrifice of the Eucharist during the Mass. Um, and as a Christian, there are a couple of places in the scriptures where we are called to uh, sacrifice. One of the most important um, documents in the New Testament is the letter to the Hebrews. Now, we don't know who the author is, but whoever it was was very uh, knowledgeable on uh, Jewish practices of the first century and was able to take those current practices and elaborate on them with the eyes of Christ, with the eyes of the church, which, which, with the eyes of the new covenant that God had made. And what mystically was taking place in the heavens, which was reflected on earth. Um, and it's, so it's, it, it becomes part of our understanding of what's happening in, in the sacrifice. So we'll be taking a look at, at all of that. We'll also uh, dive back into the Old Testament and look at the concept of the scapegoat. The scapegoat. Um, there's an interesting passage, I believe it's in Leviticus. We'll look it up for sure. Um, and we'll read it over, which is sometimes misunderstood. Um, that talks about the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, of course, um, plays right into the passion of Christ, the paschal mysteries, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, um, which also the, uh, the Passover, as we read in, in, uh, in Exodus, plays a large part in our understanding of what's happening on the cross and the, uh, the narrative of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we'll be spending some time in, uh, in the Holy Scriptures, both uh, the Hebrew and uh, Christian Scriptures, 
and uh, just kind of take a look at what's going on. We'll also probably look at some Vatican II documents on on the liturgy and the importance of the Eucharist in the life of a Catholic Christian um, and what sacrifice means for us. So I hope you enjoy this little journey. Um, and, you know, the, once again, the reason why I'm talking about this is because, you know, I had to wrestle with these ideas in my own life. And <clears throat> it's become, you know, doctrines and dogmas, if that's where you, that's where you stop, nah, it's, it's not good enough. And there's a quote. Um, let me just quote this to you uh, right now. So we'll take a little bit of a, we'll take a pause and come right back. Okay, I'm back. So I'm currently reading a book. It's called uh, Liturgical Dogmatics, How Catholics, Catholic Beliefs Flow from Liturgical Prayer. It's by David Fagerberg. It's put out by Ignatius Press. And David Fagerberg is a professor, uh, professor of liturgy at Notre Dame. And, um, he, in his introduction, quotes from another book. Uh, it's called The Pillar and Ground of the Truth by Pavel Florensky, published by Princeton University Press. I believe that's who this is from, right? Oh, no, that's the other book. Yeah, it has all kinds of good stuff in here. No, this one is uh, Patristic Theology by uh, John Romanity, Romanides. I guess that's how you say it. And it's uh, published by Uncut Mountain Press. It's from 2008. And it's from a, an Orthodox perspective rather than a uh, Catholic perspective. But I, I believe the, it holds for both. And he, and he says this. From an Orthodox viewpoint, someone probes more deeply into dogmas only when he uses them in his attempt to reach the stage of illumination. This is the Orthodox way to probe more deeply into the mysteries and dogmas. It is not an intellectual probing that aims at attempting to comprehend the mysteries or the dogmas or to enter their depths. Dogmas cannot be comprehended. In fact, dogmas are annulled in the experience of theosis because they are replaced by the very living truth that they express. Dogmas are simply guides to God. When you behold God, then dogma is set aside. Theosis is a topic that I'm going to be covering. It's become very important to me. Um, and many of what I've learned, what I learned in my 20 years of journeying through various um, spiritual and religious traditions uh, are reflected in the idea of theosis. And so... Um, I'm looking forward to being able to share that with you at some point. Very exciting. In any event, uh, when we look at these dogmas and doctrines of the church, for me, I had to learn them, but they were, they're like a gateway or a window into the truth. They aren't the truth themselves. And it took me a while to appreciate that. For the longest time, I just learned the dogmas and doctrines of the church and didn't look beyond them. 
uh, once I started doing that, which honestly, honestly, um, I've only been doing it now for a couple of years. So, you know, entering the church in 2007, uh, I spent over 10 years just learning the teachings of the church, um, practicing prayer, um, developing what we call gospel values and gospel practices, almsgiving, fasting, and prayer being the main three, I think. That's what I think, anyway. Um, and so I'm sharing some of these ideas, some of these teachings with you uh, as welcome to my life because as I embrace these teachings, I incorporate them into my way of life. Um, and I'll just, as an aside, recently I uh, began re-examining the term and label Christian, what that means. And in the United States, the term Christian can mean a lot of different things. Um, got all, all kinds of people calling themselves Christians, and we don't always believe the same thing. And even if we do believe the same thing, we don't behave the same way. Um, and our churches don't reflect the same types of worship. And there's a lot of nuance and, and difference there. Um, and so I'm reconsidering whether to call myself a Christian per se. I think Catholic Christian comes close. But I'd rather be known as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. He is my master, my guide, my guru, so to speak. And, uh, you know, so it's, that's why I consider this a valid spiritual path. And being able to embrace these teachings and doctrines allows me to dive deeper into the mysteries, into that which is hidden. Um, which brings me closer to God, which, you know, one of the, one of the great teachings uses the example of uh, a rod of iron in a fire. You know, you get the fire blazing hot, it's glowing red, yellow, whatever colors is coming out of the fire. And then you put your iron in the fire and the closer the iron gets to the fire, the more it begins to radiate its heat. And the color begins to resemble the color of the fire. And I feel it's like that in the path, in the Christian path, in the, in the way of Christ, that as we draw closer to Christ, as we spend time with God, that the heat and fire of God gets translated into our rod of iron. Uh, so, you know, and I'll be bringing in some other quotes down the line, some cool stuff I think is cool stuff anyway, to share with you. Um, but uh, let's get started in taking a look at, at sacrifice. And um, I think one of, the, one of the first places that we find sacrifice is with, uh, with Abraham. So instead of pulling out my Bible and, and reading the story to you, we'll just 
try to tell the story as best I can remember it. I haven't read it in a while, but I, it's it's pretty it's a pretty well known story out of the out of Genesis. Anyway, um, God tells Abraham that he wants him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Now, Isaac is Abraham's only son, and Abraham was quite old when Isaac was born. Um, he was like over 100 years old. And God promised Abraham that through Isaac, his descendants would be like the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky, and that he would be the father of many, many nations. And so now you've got God asking Noah, uh, Noah, asking Abraham to sacrifice his only son. This is absolutely um, unimaginable to us, something like this. Realize that Abraham probably lived about, I don't know, 6,000 years ago or more. Um, times were very different. Um, it doesn't change the shocking value of sacrificing one's son. And we're talking, you know, not just giving him to God, but putting him on the altar and killing him, right? Crazy stuff. So Abraham says, okay. And that's hard. I mean, as a father myself, I can't imagine. It's just hard to imagine, right? Really super hard to imagine. Isaac was actually a young man at the time. And so his response was even a little bit stranger. Um, however, Abraham wasn't completely transparent. So he told Isaac, hey, we're going to go up to this, the mountain that God shows us, and we're going to perform a sacrifice. Yeah, okay, cool. So they load up the mule or whatever they used to transport what they needed for the sacrifice, I guess sticks and what have you. Probably build a little altar when they get there out of, out of the rocks that are available. And uh, they're on their way. As they're on their way, um, Isaac says, hey, I don't see uh, a goat or anything, you know, to sacrifice. What, you know, what are we going to do? So Abraham says, don't worry about it. God will provide. And I think, I think at this point, um, we get a glimpse into Abraham's mind. What was going on? Um, did he expect God to provide a sacrifice for Isaac? I don't know. It sort of intimates that um, the God, you know, that Abraham knew the promise of God, and how in the world would God be able to fulfill that promise if Isaac was dead? On the other hand, maybe God would raise Isaac from the dead. So, who knows what was going on in his mind? But there's a little glimpse that that Abraham knew that all was not as it seemed. Well, anyway. They get to the spot. It's Mount Moriah. Now, here's something that's kind of interesting about Mount, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, that whole area there, is, that's where Jerusalem was built. And um, there's every indication that uh, Golgotha, 
the place of sacrifice of Jesus, where he's hung upon the cross, very likely could have been that same mountain. So in looking back from the perspective of the New Testament, the church fathers could see that, yes, here's a, this is the type of Christ that's taking place, the sacrifice of, of the Son by the Father, which is what took place on that Good Friday. Anyway, back to our story. So they build the altar. Um, you know, Abraham says, hey, uh, Isaac, you need to help me put it all together. And, you know, I mean, he was old, right? He was 100. So he's kind of old guy. And uh, they build the altar and says, okay, well, it looks like, uh, you know, I'm killing you. So this is hard to believe. I mean, this is really seriously hard to believe. Isaac gets on the altar and lets his father bind him. I mean, I can't, I, you know, getting into the consciousness of Isaac, I don't know what was going on. What did he have faith, such faith in God? Because I'm sure um, Abraham told Isaac what the promises were, that Abraham would be the father of many nations and they would come through Isaac. Isaac had faith and God was somehow going to bring about those future generations through him, um, it's hard, you know, I don't know. I can't imagine just being passively lying on that altar waiting to die. Un unfathomable. But that's the story. So anyway, so Abraham unsheathes his knife and he gets ready to plunge it into Isaac's heart. And the angel of the Lord stops him and says, don't do it, Abraham, stop. I have provided a ram for the sacrifice over in the bushes. And so he unties Isaac. Isaac climbs off and they end up sacrificing the ram instead. Um, that was a big picture of what sacrifice is all about. And there's probably many lessons that can be pulled out of that story. When the father offered his son to be sacrificed on the cross for us, there was no substitute. For Isaac, there was a substitute. But we deserved to be on that cross instead of Jesus. He was completely innocent. We are completely guilty. He was the ram offered in our place for us by the Father. He was not only the Son, he was also the ram. That's a pretty cool picture of sacrifice. And when we look at what takes place on the altar at Mass during the liturgy of the Eucharist, Eucharist um, there's a sacrifice. It takes place. And we'll get to that. We'll get to what that is and the significance of it. Hopefully, we'll get it in this episode. And if not, then we'll have a part two to get into it. So that's that's the first big, big sacrifice. You know, you can look forward into uh, to Moses, right? 
Moses uh, was born at a time when the Pharaoh really distrust, distrusts the, uh, the Jews that lived in his land, the Hebrews. Um, and so he ordered that all the newborn males would be killed. And his mom uh, gives birth to Moses and hides him, right, in the rushes. He could have stayed there. He could have died from hunger. She, but she left him up to God's providence. And it was she sacrificed her son. I don't know if we hear too much about Moses' dad. But in any event, the daughter of Pharaoh finds baby Moses in, the, in these rushes in the river of the Nile. Takes him as her own child. I'm sure she knows full well this is a Jewish child, Hebrew child. Um, then they go and uh, ask Moses's mother, whom they don't know she is his mother, probably, but maybe they guessed, I don't know, to be his nursemaid. Go figure, right? Um, so that was a big sacrifice there. Uh, and then, um, you know, we've got uh, the... Uh, the Passover sacrifice. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, when you get into Jewish law about sacrifice, uh, what God asked the people to do, they had many different kinds of sacrifices that they did. The main one, however, um, one of the main ones was the Passover that they would celebrate every year as a memorial to this occasion that took place by Moses in Egypt. It was the 10th plague. You know, they, it's a big, long story, but it, but basically God asked Moses to uh, get the children of Israel out of Egypt, deliver them from slavery. And uh, so he went and he asked Pharaoh to let him go. And Pharaoh would say yes, then he'd change his mind, and there'd be a plague, then Moses would go back, Pharaoh would say yes, then he'd change his mind, then there'd be a plague. They went through that nine times. The tenth plague. You know, it's um when you get when you get to these things, it's hard to Well, let me just say that it's 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 dangerous to apply the values of modernity to the values of the past. It just doesn't work that way. Um, what we see as horrible and atrocious and unimaginable and immoral, in those days it was looked upon differently. The other thing is, is that, as the scriptures say, God's ways are not our ways. They are not completely understandable by us. And so... In these stories, when God does something or asks other people to do something that seem unreasonable to us, perhaps there's more going on than we understand. And so we have to sort of sit back and take it in and see what the story has to tell us. So the plague basically goes like this. The plague is that God is going to send 
the angel of death into the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn of everything, people, animals, you name it, the firstborn. That would have included the children of Israel, the Hebrews. So God said, in order for the Hebrews to be um, saved from this tragedy, here's what you got to do. And one of the things they had to do was they had to find a lamb without blemish. They were to sacrifice that lamb. They were to take the blood of that lamb and um, paint it on their doorpost. If they couldn't afford one themselves, different families could come together, right? They all had to be in, in the house that was... That was uh, marked by the blood of the lamb. There were other things they needed to do also, but that was, this is the one that we want to focus in on. Then that night, the angel of the Lord went through the land of Israel, killing the firstborn. But when he came to the houses of the Hebrews, the children of Israel, the angel passed over that house when it saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And we get the name Passover. It was this event that finally convinced Pharaoh to let them leave. And they did. They left. But before they got to um, the Red Sea, Pharaoh once again changed his mind and started after them with his army. And then we get the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh and the armies and that whole, that whole scenario. But looking back into the, the Passover, that's where we get the Paschal Lamb. That's where we get the Paschal Mysteries that what we saw, what we saw and see with Jesus suffering from his arrest that Thursday night or early Friday morning, maybe all the way through to his death on that Friday, we see the sacrifice of the lamb. And of course we read in all the accounts of the story of Jesus in the gospels, we read of, of John the Baptist saying, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, um, it's a major image and we'll talk a little bit about how, um, Passover is celebrated currently and what are some of the traditions, the Jewish traditions around Passover? What does it mean, um, today as they celebrate what took place 4,000 or so years ago? So we'll look at that. Um, but before we do. I want to look at the story of the scapegoat. And for that, I am going to open up the Bible um, and read the story. So, excuse me, a little hiccup there. Let me take a pause and I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. And yes, it is in Leviticus. It is um, Leviticus. Um, 
what is what chapter are we on here? Let's see. Leviticus chapter 16. And we're going to start with verse 6. And I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version of the of the scriptures. Verse 6. Here we go. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now we're going to come back to that word Azazel, so don't forget it. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And there you get the scapegoat. Let's see if I can find this anywhere else. <laughs> now, there you go. So that's the story. Um, let's take a look here at Azazel. In the footnotes, it says, um, the meaning of Azazel is uncertain, possibly the name of a place or a demon. Traditionally, a scapegoat. So um, let's take a look at Azazel, because I know a lot of people think Azazel is the name of a demon. So let's just take a, a look and see if whether that's the case. So there's this, um, there's this book, it's called the Book of Enoch, and it was really popular back in the, in the first century. Um, and there's a tradition that Azazel is the leader of some rebellious angels, and he leads the pre-flood civilizations of men, giants, in all matters of warfare and witchcraft. So there's that tradition. However, the name Azazel, literally, let's see, literally it means, here we go. It means, scapegoat, as a scapegoat, or the place of the goat. It's a place name. It's a mountain. It says uh, in the Hebrew, Ez Azal means to be gone, used up or exhausted. And a contraction could simply mean the goat that is expended. So in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it uh, uses the term, the sent away. Um, and here's what they say here. The, and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. That's English there, right? Uh, but the goat on which the lot to be sent of the sent away one fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, 
that it may be sent away into the wilderness. Um, so they don't see the name or the term Azazel as a proper name, the name of a demon. That comes much later. So it's probably a place name and not a demon. But that's the scapegoat. The scapegoat, the sins of the nation were placed on the goat by the laying out of hands. And then it was sent out into the wilderness to die. The scapegoat. And Jesus on the cross was the scapegoat for the entire world. The sins of all were placed upon him. Right? And um, so that's another place of sacrifice. And there were two goats, right? Two goats. Very interesting. Very interesting looking at, looking at sacrifice. If we look at the letter to the Hebrews, let's go to that real quickly here. Let's go to Hebrews. Uh, it's, I think it's chapter 12. Let's just see. I've got to flip over to it quickly. Or not so quickly as the case may be. Hebrews, Hebrews, there you are. Chapter 12. I think it's the beginning of chapter 12. Or is it Romans? You know, what do I do when memory fails me? I don't know. Yeah. It's not Hebrews 12. Nope, it's not. It's Romans. Okay, so we're going to go to Romans. Bear with me here. I apologize. I really do. I really do. It's Romans. Uh, Romans what, though? Romans 12? Well, let's see. It is Romans 12. Check this out. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, so when we worship in the Mass and we come before the Lord to participate in that divine liturgy where the sacrifice takes place, we attach ourselves to that sacrifice as our sacrifice. We, we are sacrificing. One of the things that we all say together as a community, may the Lord accept your sacrifice and ours. Um, there's another one thing about sacrifice. I believe it's in um, letter of James. I believe that's where it is. And my nose is going to itch for me. Of course it is. Of course it's going to itch right there. So let's go to James real quick. I'm pretty sure that's where it is. Oh, but where? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to have to pause this and look it up so you don't have to wait for me. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong. It's in Matthew, and it's in chapter 5. And it's not about sacrifice directly. It's not the word that's used. 
uh, the word is gift, but this is what it says. It says, um, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be first or first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so it's in the context of gift, gifting God, bringing a gift to the temple to offer to God. And in that gift is a sacrifice of sorts. Um, it was either uh, an animal, and, you know, if you, the animal was expensive and you're offering it up. Um, it could be something of value. You know, um, there were grain offerings. You couldn't afford a lamb or a bull or a goat. You could offer a bird, a uh, pigeon, whatever. Um, but it cost you something. It was a sacrifice. Uh, and you gave money to the temple. And that was a sacrifice. Jesus said over and over again, don't give out of your abundance, but give, you know, give out of your means. So... It's always in the context of sacrifice. So here Jesus is telling his followers, followers in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where this is found, um, talking in the context of bringing your gifts to the altar. Uh, and we do the same thing, right? In the, uh, in the sacred liturgy, there's a point in time where the gifts are brought forward. Um, historically, that were, the gifts were brought forward. I mean, it was produce, uh, animals, various things that people would bring. Today, uh, the gifts are the bread and the wine that are used in the consecration for the body and the blood of Christ. Those are the gifts. So um, we still do that. And we bring our, we off, there's an opportunity to bring the gift of financial gift, right? In, in our offering, uh, which is to be a sacrifice. And the ultimate gift that we bring, excuse me, is the gift of ourselves in that holy, that holy divine liturgy in union with the sacrifice of Christ during the sacrifice of the gifts. So um, I think at this point we've run out of time um, to look at sacrifice a little bit more in the context of the, the Eucharist. So we will uh, we'll, we'll bring that back for next time. Hopefully I won't wait so long because my thoughts are pretty, pretty clear about sacrifice um, and what's going on up in the altar. Just to leave one little thought in the letter to the Hebrews, it is stated that, um, that Christ died once for all. And when we recite our profession of faith, which is taken from the Nicene Creed, we say that there is one sacrifice. There is one. And it's done once and for all. And so the question becomes then, if indeed there's a sacrifice taking place on the altar during the Mass, is that a different sacrifice? Are we adding to Christ's sacrifice? So that's something to reflect upon. And that's something that I will discuss in uh, in the next episode. So we'll say this is uh, Eucharistic Sacrifice Part 1, and we'll do Eucharistic Sacrifice Part 2 next time. So I thank you 
for taking the time out to listen to this. This may not be what you believe. This may not be what your particular Christian denomination teaches. Um, so I appreciate your willingness to be open-minded and, and listen to, to uh, how I understand what the Church teaches in regards to the Eucharistic sacrifice. So until we meet again, um, be well, be happy, be safe, especially during this Omicron time. And uh, may God bless you all. Talk to you soon. This podcast is being hosted by Anchor.fm and can be found on your favorite source for podcasts. The artwork for My Life and Welcome to It is by Dave Edwards. Season 3's theme music is After All Has Changed by Humans Win, formerly Lance Conrad. If you are enjoying my adventure, you can support me by going to buymeacoffee.com slash M-L-A-W-T-I. One percent of all donations goes to Stripe Climate to combat climate change. You can find a list of their projects at stripe.com. Each episode of Season 3, Seeking God's Face, will appear on a random schedule. I really enjoy bringing you along on this journey called life. You can always email me at mlawti101 at gmail.com or you can leave me a voice message at anchor.fm. So until we meet again, be safe, be well, be happy, and God bless.